The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of the Psalms. Psalm 110, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading the entire psalm this evening. Interestingly, the first verse of Psalm 110 is the verse from the Old Testament that is most commonly quoted in the New. Psalm 110, beginning at verse 1, the word of the Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment against the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 4 this evening. The word of our God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. These glorious truths are foundation stones upon which you ought to be building your life. They are, in fact, more than that. These glorious truths are foundation stones upon which the Holy Spirit is already building your life and upon which he is already building Christ's church. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. First and foremost, these are truths about Christ himself. Yet second, the reason why these truths are such good news for the people of God is that Christ didn't do them for himself. The Son of God does these things on behalf of and in union with his people. Let me say that again, because if we don't get this, we're going to miss out on a great deal of what the Holy Spirit has for us in tonight's passage. The reason why these truths are good news for the people of God is because the Son of God is doing these things in union with and on behalf of his people. Paul is going to apply these three truths 
in a way that differs from their historical order. He's going to begin, in fact, with us being raised with Christ. So first, Paul will point out that you have already been raised with Christ. Second, Paul will return to the fact that you have already died with Christ. And third, Paul makes clear that when Christ returns in glory, all those who trust in Christ now will also appear with, in glory with him then. Those are the three main headings for tonight's sermon. First, you have already been raised with Christ. Second, you have already died with Christ. And third, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Before we dive into tonight's passage, we have to remind ourselves of the situation that was taking place in Colossae. Uh, I preached on a passage from Colossians about five or six months ago, but I think it would be a little bit uh, expecting too much to think you would all remember the situation in Colossae uh, from back then. The young church at Colossae is being challenged by a strange syncretistic mix of Jewish mysticism and pagan philosophy. Christians in Colossae, in various ways, were being told that they had made a really good start by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. But now if they wanted to move on to more in their lives, to greater spiritual attainment, they had to move on to something else. Perhaps they needed to move on to pursuing ecstatic visions. Uh, perhaps they needed to follow some sort of rigorous asceticism which denied the world and its pleasures. That spiritual maturity would come from rejecting things that the Lord himself declares are good. Or perhaps they would find the more that they were seeking through the worship of angels. Or perhaps they would find that more by moving from being Gentile Christians to becoming devout Jews in all the Old Testament practices, with Jesus being the bridge into Judaism, but the really big thing being their newfound devotion to keeping the Jewish ceremonial law. You understand the temptation. And the reality is, is that throughout our Christian lives, we're going to keep coming up to the place where we realize we're not everything that we should be. We don't possess everything that we ought to have. We want to have more. That desire is normal, it is natural, it is part of the Christian life. And yet, the problem with the troublemakers in Colossae was not the desire for more. It was that they were encouraging people to find that more, that growth, those spiritual treasures, in all the wrong places by moving away from Jesus Christ. Although the specifics of the individual temptations would superficially be different, at their heart, all of these temptations are saying, you made a really good start by trusting in Jesus. But now if you want to grow, if you want to have deeper spiritual experiences, you need to move on to something else. Well, there are a number of competing theories about exactly who this group is in ancient Colossae. Uh, they were causing so much trouble in the church. But it wasn't as though the, we've dug up in archaeological ruins and found name tags and confessions of faith next to each other 
so that we could precisely identify this group. In fact, that doesn't really make any sense. That's not how syncretism works in the first place. Uh, the way syncretism works is that people borrow a little bit of this, a little bit of that, they put it together as fits their fancy. That means that the troublemakers in Colossae, instead of being a monolithic, homogenous group, were almost certainly uh, people that had a whole range of views. And what Paul was addressing here is the main thrust of those views, as I hear, I mean throughout the book of his letter to the church at Colossae, to say that all of them, and many more that you could add, are all badly mistaken in leading you away from Jesus Christ. So instead of imagining that there's this one homogenous group of legalistic Jewish mystics who are incorporating bits of Neoplatonic philosophy into their thinking, we would probably be more historically accurate to assume that there were a range of beliefs and practices for those who were plaguing the church. And see, that's actually really helpful for us because I trust in this coming week, you are not going to be plagued or tempted by Jewish ascetic mystics who are blending in a bit of neo-paganism, I mean a neo-platonism, into their philosophy. But you are going to be tempted by people who say your life could be more than it is right now, perhaps much more than it is right now, and they offer you something that is apart from Jesus Christ. Not surprisingly, the Apostle Paul wants us to fully grasp just how desperately wrong it is to try to move beyond our Lord. At the end of chapter 2, chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul points out the foolishness of Christians thinking that the path to spiritual maturity and sanctification lies in somehow being rigorous about man-made rules. Picking up in verse 20, we read this. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom, and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Beloved, I, I really want to plead with you tonight to implant those words in your mind and in your heart, because American evangelicalism is full of man-made religion. And the, the desire that people have is to say, well, they're sincere, they mean well, and even if they're a little bit off track, it's, it's going to help them at least some. But do you understand that Paul is saying such man-made religion doesn't help you a little bit? It is of no value at all in dealing with the flesh. In fact, man-made religion is to feed the flesh, right? It's saying we're going to do it my way. Look how spiritual I am which is in fact one of the problems with the Colossian troublemakers. What's the alternative? The alternative is to start with Christ, to build on Christ, and to finish with Christ. The alternative is Jesus Christ from beginning to end. Now, if you read through Colossians, you'll see that the Holy Spirit will repeatedly tell us 
But there is, in fact, more for us. Much more. But that more is not found in what we imagine. That more is found in us building and growing and knowing Christ more. The more that God has for us comes to us in Christ and in Christ alone. And here's some good news. Although you are, in fact, called, as we saw at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, to build your life diligently upon the person, the work, and the teaching of Jesus Christ, there's actually something even more basic than that about your Christian life. What's more basic than what you are doing to build your life is what Christ has already done to give you life. The Son of God has chosen to identify himself with you so that in him you would have life, and you would have it in abundance. And so Paul begins, therefore, with the glorious truth that you have already been raised from the dead in union with him. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Verses 1 and 2. If then, and this this is an if for rhetorical purposes, it's a since, right? This is true about you if you are in Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things, but are on earth. See, Paul begins not with an aspiration, but with an established fact. If you are a Christian, that is, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have already been raised in Jesus to newness of life. Here stands one of the most astonishing truths in the entire Bible. The Son of God chose to identify with you. He chose to identify with humanity by taking to himself a true human nature, and he chose to identify with you personally. When he came to the River Jordan to be baptized, Jesus had no sin to repent of, and yet he received the baptism that was intended for sinners, identifying with you and me, saying to John, for now permitted to be so that we would fulfill all righteousness. The Son of God chose to identify with his people And although we had no need to repent, our Lord publicly identified with sinners like you and like me. And it is out of this union that we now have with Christ that the great exchange takes place. Our guilt is reckoned to his account. His perfect life, his righteousness is reckoned to ours because he has chosen to unite himself with us. This is why the apostles, particularly the apostle Paul, routinely describe the people of God as being in Christ. That's what that language means. You can see it over and over again. I usually use that when I send letters to the church. Right In Christ, Pastor Booth. It's saying that the most fundamental thing about us is that we are in union with Jesus Christ. We're in union with Christ, not first and foremost because we chose to be in union with him, but because he chose to be united with us. Christ has so fully united himself with us as his people that in principle, when he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. And when he ascended into heaven to sit at his father's right hand, we ascended with him 
and we are now already in principle sitting on the throne of the universe with the Lord and King of all, Jesus Christ. I hardly need to say this, but this astonishing reality ought to change the way that we think. This astonishing reality ought to change the way that we live. So Paul says, in light of the fact that you have already been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on things on the earth. Well, we have a problem. If I were to say to you that so-and-so is so heavenly-minded, blank, you can all fill in the blank. In fact, you already all did in your heads. The way we think about being heavenly-minded in North America is that if someone's heavenly-minded, that means they're of no earthly good. Correspondingly, we want to talk about people being practical and useful and helpful. We say things like they're grounded. They have both feet firmly planted on the ground. If we approach this passage through that lens, without correcting it, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. We're not going to be able to truly get into our hearts that God wants us to set our minds, our hearts, our desires on things that are above. Now, the good news is it's really just about clarifying terms. Um, The issue here has to do with what do we mean by being heavenly-minded. In a bad sense of that term, the Colossian troublemakers were heavenly-minded, but in the wrong sense of that term. They wanted to speculate about angels, about worshiping angels or worshiping with angels. It's all this flighty stuff. Well, if that's what your life is absorbed with, then you are going to be a very little earthly good. Paradoxically, um, these um, Colossian troublemakers, who in that sense are being heavenly-minded, were also quite worldly. You have to think about what worldliness is. Worldliness is not about having both feet planted firmly on ground, being practical. Um, David Wells says it in a way that I really like. Um, A very fine theologian who retired, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago as a professor but he's still doing a bit of writing, I think. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Think about that. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Now, a lot of people looking upon the Colossian troublemakers would not have thought of them as being worldly because people that live aesthetic lives and deny themselves lots of things they can look like they're actually spiritual or at least pretty moral. But beloved, I want you to realize that worldliness does not mean drunkenness. It does not mean engaging in sexual orgies. I mean, it can be those things, but worldliness is fundamentally just selfishness. And it can look like self-actualization where everything's about me and I don't love my neighbor at all. That is worldliness according to the word of God And that was what is going on here with the troublemakers in Colossae. Although they were claiming to be super spiritual, both the troublemakers' flights of mysticism, 
and their rigid, rigid creation-denying asceticism were in fact displays of worldliness because either way, it was all about them. Though they presented themselves as being super spiritual, they were actually manifesting radical selfishness. Instead of seeking to fulfill the great commandments to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbors as ourselves, these troublemakers were focused on self-actualization. Their man-made religion was for their own benefit and for their own glory. Now, it is true that biblical Christianity is for your benefit. Right? God delights to bless his children, but it is only for your benefit rightly if it is also for the glory of the living God. Right? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What Paul, by contrast, means by being heavenly-minded, not flights of fancy, but setting your mind on Jesus Christ. Seeking the things that are above means focusing on who Jesus is, what he has done, and how he is calling us to follow him right here on earth in our day-to-day lives. In adult Sunday school, we've been talking about the resurrection of Christ and how the resurrection of Christ benefits us. Then this morning, we shifted to the ascension and the session of Christ, that is, him being seated at the right hand of the Father. And once again, we focused on how that benefits us. This evening's passage is about both. We have already been raised with Christ, therefore we are to seek things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Christ, your great high priest, is already in the throne room of heaven, ever living to make intercession for you. Christ, your king, is already seated on the throne of the universe, ruling over the entire universe, Yes, for the sake of his own glory, but also for the sake of his church. And while Christ is simultaneously both your great high priest and the king of kings and the lord of lords, Paul's emphasis here seems to be falling on the latter because he's talking about Christ sitting. Uh, You'll notice this if you read through the Bible that Christ often stands as a high priest and he sits as king. This language of Christ taking his seat at the right hand of the Father is an echo of our Old Covenant passage that we read this evening from Psalm 110. In particular, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, needless to say, we do not yet see all things under Christ's feet. Yet we have been sent out into God's own mission to disciple the nations so that a vast multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will voluntarily bow the knee to Jesus now, looking forward to the day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we discussed this morning, our ascended and exalted Lord does not say, I did my part, now it's time for you to do yours. Rather, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I am sending you out in that authority to engage in my mission, a mission that cannot fail, because I am the one who is building the church. Living for the exalted Christ 
is what leads you to love your neighbors better than you ever have before. Living for the exalted Christ is what leads us to seek peace, to lift up the downcast, to share the gospel, and to make something useful of our lives for the sake of other people. Beloved, contrary to the popular slogan, unless we are heavenly minded in this way, so that we live for Christ and seek first his kingdom and its righteousness, unless we are heavenly minded in this way, we are in fact of no earthly good. Will it be easy? Well, if you've read the New Testament, you know to ask that question is to answer it. We are not following a Lord who got celebrated everywhere he went. We are following a Messiah who came into this world and was scorned and mocked and ultimately beaten and crucified. He's the one that we serve. It's quite fitting that the cross of Jesus Christ would become the universal symbol of Christianity. Not even the empty tomb, as glorious as that is. And as people who follow a crucified Savior, Jesus tells us, if this is what they do to the Master, what do you think they're going to do to the servants? And in fact, Jesus tells us quite plainly, in this world, you will have tribulation. Thankfully, of course, that is not all Jesus says. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have already overcome the world. Here's an invitation that almost sounds too good to be true. We get to commit to following to Jesus after we already know who is going to win. By his grace, you have already been raised with Christ, and you have already been seated with him in the heavenly places. Now Christ is sending you out on a mission, a mission that cannot possibly fail. You have been raised with Christ to newness of life. You have therefore already died with Christ to a life given over to worldliness. As we looked at Christ's healing ministry in this morning's sermon, we discussed how our present age involves both the already of Christ's kingdom, but also the not yet of this biblical eschatology. With the coming of Jesus Christ, the history of the world has turned on a hinge. Christ has already inaugurated his kingdom, but he has not yet consummated it. The thing I want you to see this evening is this is not just true of history. This is already true in your life. By God's grace, you have already received the life of the age to come by being born again, by being united with Jesus Christ. By God's grace, you have already died with Christ. You've already been raised to newness of life. And yet you have not yet become what you one day will be. You still carry the old man around with you. You still face temptations, not merely from without, but also from within. You and I continue to wrestle with both sin and the many aspects of the fall that remain part of this present age. Whenever you are tempted to go back to your old life, the Apostle Paul has words for you. He wants to stiffen your spine by reminding you that in Christ, you have already died to that old way of life. That is no longer who you are. 
As the apostle says in verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's a beautiful phrase. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. But what exactly does it mean? I think two ideas come to the forefront. First, united with Christ, you are completely secure in your relationship with God. Your identity is now found in Jesus Christ. You know, we live in an age over the last 15 years where there's been an enormous explosion of people talking about identity. What is your identity? How do you determine your identity? But as Christians, we know that our identity is found distinctly in Jesus Christ. This this is one of the reasons why it's such a horrendous mistake for people to hyphenate their Christianity the way that they might hyphenate their nationality. Uh, If you want to think of yourself as being Irish-American, that's fine for me. I know that bothers some people, but, you know, there are those distinctives. E pluribus unum, from many one, right? You come from different backgrounds, united in one country. But if you identify yourself as a Christian, along with your former sin, you're bringing two things together that should never be. And so when someone says, for example, that they're a gay Christian, they're not simply making a wrong statement about the nature of God's view of homosexuality. They're making a mistake about their own sense of identity. I I can't remember his name now, but I actually sent an article to the church three or four years ago by a British Anglican evangelical who's kind of accidentally outed himself as someone who wrestles with same-sex temptation. One of the things he had to tell people is, that is not my identity, any more than I would identify as a covetous Christian, right? Uh, I may wrestle with covetousness, but that's the remaining aspects of the old man in me. But that is not who I now am in Jesus Christ. In Christ, I am a Christian. Jesus himself is my most fundamental identity. In Christ, beloved, you have been raised to newness of life. Second, the glory of your life in God is hidden from the world. I want to think a bit about this hiddenness and and, and the aspect of it being revealed that we see in this passage, not only for you, but also for Christ and how those two things go together. Right now, Jesus Christ is enthroned as the King of kings and Lord of lords over the entire universe. He's not waiting to become king. He is king. And yet we do not yet see all things under his feet. His rule was hidden from our sight and from the sight of our neighbors in many ways. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ this evening, right now, you are already a royal priesthood and a chosen nation. Yet I scarcely need to point out that when you walk into school or you walk into work this week, people are not going to look at you in awe and speak in hushed voices and say, she's a daughter of the living God. Right? He's royal. He's a king. No, the reality of what you already are is hidden from plain sight so that people cannot see it. Nevertheless, From the moment you first placed your trust in Jesus, you were justified and you were adopted into God's family. As the Apostle John puts it in his first epistle, 
Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is the same glorious truth that Paul is driving at in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. There's an already and a not yet. There's an already and a not yet to our lives as the children of God. You were created in the image of God with the mission of reflecting the Lord's perfect character into the world. Um, Obviously, humanity's rebellion against God messed that up. Human beings often represent sin into the world rather than righteousness. But now you are in Christ. Yes, you still sin, but you are no longer fundamentally a sinner. Now that you are in Christ, your Lord is calling you once again to let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That is, you are being called to be a chip off the old block. That is the already. And the already has a glory of its own. But that glory is only genuine because of its connection to Jesus Christ and therefore its connection to what one day you will certainly become in him. Beloved, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Because you have been united with Christ by grace through faith, these realities are not only true of Christ, they are also true of you. You have already died with Christ. You have already been raised with Christ. And so when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let us comfort one another with these truths. And let us live in light of these truths, not for the age that is passing away, but for the age that is to come. Amen.